Hello everyone! Are you ready to embark on a magical journey into the world of nature's treasures? Look no further than Into the Woods Stones and Crystals. Discover the enchanting collection of stones and crystals that will ignite your spirit and elevate your well-being. At Into the Woods Stones and Crystals, they offer a treasure trove of Mother Earth's finest gems, all carefully handpicked to bring you positive energy and healing vibrations. Whether you're a seasoned crystal enthusiast or just beginning your crystal journey, they've got something for everyone. From amethyst to quartz, citrine to obsidian, each crystal is a unique masterpiece waiting to enhance your life. And if you listen to my interview on Creepy Chisma, you know how much I love obsidian. But that's not all. When you shop with them, you're not just buying crystals, you're investing in a deeper connection with nature. Their crystals are ethically sourced and sustainably harvested, ensuring they protect the earth as they share its precious gifts. And here's a special treat for you listeners. Use code TRUTHORDEMONS, all one word, at checkout to enjoy an exclusive discount on your purchase. Ready to bring a touch of magic into your life? Visit their website, into-the-woods-stones.myshopify.com. I'll put the link in the show notes. Explore their exquisite collection and don't forget to follow them on social media for updates, special offers, and crystal wisdom. I will put all links in the show notes. Into the Woods Stones and Crystals where the magic of nature meets the power of your spirit. Shop now, enter Truth or Demons at checkout, and let the journey begin. Welcome back to Truth or Demons Podcast. I'm your host, Stevie, and today I have another bonus episode for you. You guys know how much I love doing interviews, and I have a really fantastic one for you today. So much good info and some really fun stories. And I promise, episode 6, Devil in the Courtroom, is coming. It's so much research and writing for that one, but it's going to be so good. And of course, Annabelle Part 2 is coming soon as well. I haven't decided which one we'll release first yet, but either way, they're both coming very soon. Back to today's guest. Thanks to all my recent interviews and pumping out back-to-back episodes for seven days over Halloween. I still can't believe I did that. But yeah, so due to that, I've reached a few more people in the field of paranormal studies, and one of them reached out to me and offered to be another voice on the show. When he followed up his introduction with the words, I'm a parapsychologist, I can't even begin to tell you how excited I got. I immediately replied and told him I would absolutely love to have him on the show to talk about his knowledge and insight as a parapsychologist and paranormal investigator. So... This is a short and sweet intro, and I am so excited to welcome Elliot Van Dusen to Truth or Demons. Enjoy! Alrighty, so go ahead and tell the listeners a little about you. Well, my name is Elliot Van Dusen, and I am the Corporate Director for Paranormal Phenomena Research and Investigation, which is a registered nonprofit organization in both uh, Canada and the United States. Um, we're registered across Canada federally in the province of Nova Scotia where our headquarters is and uh, we're incorporated in the state of Massachusetts and what we do is uh, we don't charge for our services at all uh, we investigate and research um, pretty much anything to do with the paranormal in both Atlantic Canada and the New England uh, parts of the United States and we've been in, in existence since 
1997. So I've been investigating the paranormal for 26 years now. That's awesome. So how long have yeah, you... Yeah, it's... Um, I'm sorry, go ahead. <laughs> yeah, it... Oh, it's a, uh, yeah, it's been, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's great. It's certainly a fascination of mine and, um, yeah, it's something that I, I hope I can continue to do for, uh, you know, a long, a long time. For sure. What got you into it? So I, I get asked that a lot. Uh, and a lot of people say they got into it because they had an experience, but, uh, for me it was, um, watching the show unsolved mysteries because i knew that i wanted to be a police officer and not just any police officer i knew that i wanted to um, be a homicide detective and unsolved mysteries of course had all the cold cases and the homicide cases so that really fascinated me but every once in a while they throw in you know a ghost story or a ufo story or cryptid and um that really caught my attention as well so you know, I, I really enjoyed uh, enjoyed that program, and then it was about 1997 when I created PPRI uh, that I had come across the television series The X Files. Now, it had been on TV since 1993, but I hadn't seen it uh, up until 1997. And uh, once I saw the first episode, I thought it was really cool that you had two law enforcement officers investigating, you know, cases of the supernatural. And that's what kind of prompted me to uh, create paranormal phenomena research and investigation so that I could start collecting local stories around my area. And uh, it kind of grew from there. Uh, we did have chapters all across uh, Canada and uh, parts of the United States there at one point. Um, but the bigger you get, I find the harder it is to kind of manage that organization so right now we we just have a very small team uh i have two members in the united states my co-founder spencer collier and one of my researchers and then um i have another eight of us up here in canada all in nova scotia um but uh yeah we do do some limited travel obviously have to do a lot of fundraising throughout the year um you know because we we do have a limited budget being a nonprofit, but um you know, certainly we're, we are available to assist the public and, and we're free of charge. That's awesome. I love hearing that. <clears throat> Excuse me. Okay, so um, what is it that led you to my podcast? Well, it was funny. I uh, was just on Facebook um, and I had seen a post by uh, Eric Vitale uh, talking about uh, some issues that uh, you were having with uh, the New England Society for Psychical Research. And, uh, of course, that led me down a rabbit hole. So I, I checked out your podcast, and then I saw that you had interviewed Eric, and I didn't know that Eric uh, had stepped away from NESPR, I believe, when he added me on Facebook uh, maybe two years ago. He, he was a member of uh, NESPR. And uh, I listened to... Uh, his interview uh, with you and I, I thought it was really good. I thought you did a really good job and I thought, uh, Thank you know, you. he was really interesting to listen to. Oh, no problem. So, uh, yeah. So I decided to reach out to you and yeah, see if, uh, if you know, if you ever needed a guest, uh, I love to come on and, um, part of our objective in PPRI is, uh, investigations, research, but also education. So I, I do do a lot of podcasts and interviews, um, to kind of, you know, promote the field of parapsychology and the paranormal. I love that, and I'm really glad you reached out to me because, <clears throat> excuse me, a lot of uh, 
what I'm trying to do is to spread awareness of the fact that there's a lot of misinformation in the paranormal world and the community and it's hard to know who's putting out what, especially with everybody on TV and also especially with a bunch of misinformation that has just been repeatedly perpetuated over the years. And so when you reached out to me and said you were a parapsychologist, I got really excited because I would love to have someone in that field of study come on and talk about the, the legitimate things of paranormal research and ghost hunting. Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, and there are, like you said, there are some misconceptions out, uh, out there. I, I often hear about people wanting to investigate in the dark because, you know, they do it on television all the time. And uh, what I tell people is the Society for Psychical Research, um, which was created back in 1882, have, you know, kind of been doing this for a long time, over 200 years. And um, they did... Uh, an analysis on hauntings and, and ghosts. And what um, Eleanor Sedgwick was able to determine was that ghosts can appear any day, uh, time of day, sorry, you know, day or night, uh, any sort of weather, whether it's raining, snowstorm, they can appear inside places, outside places. There's really no rhyme or reason um, for when they appear or, or how they manifest. So one of the myths, you know, I, that I often hear is, uh, are we going to turn the lights out while we go into this place? And, and the answer is no. The only time you should do that is if your client's telling you, hey, the only time I see the ghost is in my bedroom if the lights are turned out at 2 in the morning. You know, other than that, uh, you should be investigating with the lights on um, to try and capture your best evidence. And uh, another reason to do it is, is safety as well. For example, we did a public um, event here just uh, last month in Amherst, Nova Scotia at a museum and uh, it was open to the public. I think there was 20 tickets sold. So there was two, uh, two investigators, myself and uh, one of my other investigators and then 20 members of the public. And somebody had asked that question. I said, no, I said, of course not. I said, I'll be the guy that, you know, falls through a display case and damages, you know, something. So, um, <laughs> and, the, and then I explained to them, you know, uh, the reasons why we actually don't investigate in the dark and it's only done on TV you know, to, to use the night vision or the infrared vision and, and kind of make it spooky and, and kind of cool. Um, the other uh, fallacy that I kind of like to uh, talk about as well is um, the equipment that's out there that, that a lot of people are using. So a, a lot of this equipment is marketed as, you know, a ghost detector or ghost hunting tools, but there's actually no such thing. There's no piece of equipment that can detect human consciousness. We don't even understand fully what human consciousness is, um, let alone have a piece of equipment that can detect it. So we use tools to kind of rule out natural phenomena. And I'll give you a couple of examples. So um, in 1921, there was a study done about a haunted uh, house. And what they found in this house was that there was excessive amounts of carbon monoxide, and that was causing uh, the people to experience hallucinations, both auditory and visual, and kind of emulate a haunting. And then in 2001, there was another case of uh, excessive amounts of carbon monoxide in the house. What had happened is a lady had a hot water tank installed recently while she was getting a shower. An apparition appeared in the shower with her, freaked her out. 
uh, she got out, um, eventually called a paranormal team in, and they were able to find out that the hot water tank that had recently been installed at her house was installed improperly and was giving off excessive amounts of carbon monoxide. Once that was fixed, um, the haunting disappeared. My other colleague uh, with my organization, Dr. Daryl Walsh, who is also a parapsychologist, um, had a case where uh, somebody would wake up in the middle of the night and they would see an apparition at the end of their bed. And what he was able to determine because of one of the tools that we use, the uh, EMF reader, the electromagnetic field radiation detector, is that this uh, client had an old alarm clock right on their nightstand, very close to their head, and it was giving off excessive and unsafe amounts of electromagnetic radiation. And we know through uh, parapsychological research in laboratories, uh, especially the work done by the LACE uh, Canadian um, Dr. Michael Persinger at Laurentian University, that an increase in uh, electromagnetic energy to the brain can cause people to experience a haunting, such as seeing apparitions. When he did his study in the laboratory, people reported seeing lost loved ones. Some people even reported seeing uh, religious figures such as the Virgin Mary. So um, what we did in that case is have the homeowner replace their alarm clock with a newer, safer alarm clock. And, of course, the haunting disappeared. So that's kind of one of the educational pieces that I like to talk about on why we use that type of equipment. You know, it's not like an EMF reader detects human consciousness you're trying to rule out any sort of natural phenomena that might be occurring within somebody's house that could be causing the haunting and sometimes you do go through that entire process and are still left with questions you know um for example there was a house that we investigated many years ago in kentville nova scotia it was a historical home um approximately 110 years old and uh one of the things that was happening in the house was uh, pennies were materializing and the homeowners would constantly find them everywhere and they'd collect them and put them in a jar and they also saw a female apparition walk down their stairs and they saw the apparition of one of their basset hounds that had passed away so they had reached out and contacted uh, PPRI and we had come down and conducted an investigation and on the first night that we were there um, we had a camera set up in between the kitchen and the dining room and there was only one way in one way out the husband and the two daughters um that lived in the house were upstairs sleeping at the time it was very late in the morning about one to two in the morning and uh myself my other investigators and the wife were still up sitting on the couch in the living room and every hour on the hour i would get my investigator to go check the camcorder to make sure that the tape is still running that the batteries are still charged and lo and behold Um, this one time around two in the morning, he had gone to check the battery and the tape and a penny had materialized by the base of the tripod. And, um, you could hear on the camera, the sound was very good. You could hear when the investigator would get up off the couch, you could actually hear the springs lift up from the couch. You could hear his feet get louder as he approached the camera. And of course you could hear the muffle sound when he was checking the camera to make sure that the tape, the battery, uh, were working but at no point did you ever hear like a penny drop to the floor you would hear that distinct metal sound did you hear somebody approach it unless it was the investigator every hour on the hour and that was just something that we simply couldn't explain and it was interesting enough that we wanted to come back and do another night and of course the homeowners granted us that permission and on the second night one of my investigators actually witnessed um, a 
female apparition of a child in one of the upstairs bedrooms. So that that house there was one of those ones where, um, you know, it, we actually did find one natural uh, explanation for one, one of the things, but where they would see the apparition come down the stairs, um, we were getting high EMF readings right by the bottom of the stairs. And what we were able to find out um, once one of the investigators went down to the basement is that they had a bunch of unshielded wires underneath uh, the house. And that was causing excessive amounts of uh, electromagnetic radiation. So somebody, if they're standing at the bottom of the stairs, may possibly witness, you know, uh, an apparition coming down the stairs. But the upstairs um, had been renovated and, and the wiring up there was really good. So there was really no way to kind of explain why the investigator saw the apparition up there in that bedroom. So sometimes you, you come across, uh, I call it a mixed bag case, where some things you can kind of rule out and other things you're left questioning. What was that? That's really cool. Um, do you think people, some people are more, are more susceptible to the electromagnetic radiation than others? Yeah, absolutely. I, um, you know, I, I, I don't feel, I, I have good intuition, but I don't feel, you know, that I am that good that I could be a medium or anything like that. Whereas some people just have that natural ability to kind of pick up on energy in the environment uh, a lot easier than, than some. And I do think that different people can experience different things you know like i might be able to withstand a little bit more electromagnetic radiation in the laboratory compared to somebody else before i start hallucinating um i haven't seen the stats uh of the work done by dr michael persinger where um he talks about each individual and what level of uh, radiation they were exposed to by the time they started to hallucinate but um, i can only imagine that each person is different you know some people respond differently to the environment than, than other people do. Yeah, that makes total sense. <clears throat> what are some of the other scientifically explained um, things you experience in your investigations? Well, one, one was a funny one, actually. Uh, it was a haunted Airbnb that we investigated a, a couple of years ago. And uh, the homeowner had said uh, that she had seen a female apparition in the house and that there would be muddy boot prints that would just appear in the kitchen no matter how many times she'd clean it up, she'd leave the house, and then when she'd come back, uh, there'd, there'd be these boot prints again. And the third thing that she reported was that no matter how many times she closed the back door's curtain, she'd always come back and find that the curtain was open again. So myself and one of my other investigators went and spent the night uh, at the Airbnb, Airbnb and early on while we were getting our equipment ready one of the interesting things that happened was um, one of the batteries in our uh, motion detector uh, got really really hot to the point that if we hadn't taken it out of the motion detector I think it possibly could have caught fire um, and it was a brand new battery and uh, there was really no kind of explanation for why it was uh, acting like that. So we, we did make a note of that and thought that that was, you know, strange. I wouldn't call it paranormal, but certainly strange. Something to make note of. And uh, we set up a camera that night and, uh, you know, we used all the tools, all the wiring in the house looked good. Uh, there was no sudden shifts in temperature, nothing like that. Uh, didn't experience an apparition, um, didn't see the uh, footprints appear while we were there. 
But the one thing that we did solve was the drape on the back door that would always be open. So what we noticed is uh, over a period of time, so once you close that drape, anytime the furnace kicked in, there was a vent about two feet away from the back door, and it would just ever so slightly push the curtain over to the right. And if you were standing in front of it and the furnace came on, you probably wouldn't notice anything. But because we had the camera set up, we woke up in the morning and of course the curtain was pushed over uh, to the far right. So when we reviewed the tape, you can slowly see each time that when the furnace kicks in, you can hear the furnace kick in, that um, over a period of time that that drape would move over to the right. So in that case, uh, you know, when we talked to the homeowner, we filled them in on the investigation. We said we were able to solve one of your three mysteries anyway, uh, but we didn't see the, the footprints appear. We didn't um, see the apparition. So we're not saying that your place isn't haunted. Uh, it just wasn't the right time for us to experience anything there. But we did solve one of three mysteries. And, uh, you know, she thought that was pretty cool. That is really neat. I really love that you guys told her, you know, we the, of the three things, we were able to debunk one, but we don't have answers for the other, and this is why. Instead of just being like, yeah, it's definitely haunted, you, you know, this is what happens in a haunting, and you're experiencing that, and even though we didn't see anything, that's, it's, you know, it's haunted. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, for sure, and uh, that's one thing I, I also teach, uh, I teach, uh, well, right now I'm teaching Introduction to Parapsychology, and I just finished the Introduction to Demonology course. Um, so this past September, we opened up the uh, Parapsychological Education Center. It's an online um, learning center, and uh, we're hoping to offer some more courses. Um, we're offering a poltergeist case here starting November 20th, a four-week online poltergeist course. And um, one of the things that I teach uh, my students and anyone really when I'm doing educational events is to help the client because I've, I've often heard that when people call a paranormal investigative team in, they'll come in with all their fancy equipment and, you know, they use their tape recorders and maybe they'll share some of the evidence with the homeowners, like an electronic voice phenomena or whatever they've captured. But other than that, you usually just hear that they kind of just vacate after they're done and that's it. The people are still left with, their haunting and, and their problem and the initial reason for most people contacting a paranormal organization is, is to get help. So we always try and make sure that, you know, we do help the client. We're not just in there to conduct the scientific investigation, but we're also there to help the client. And, um, usually we do a lot of follow-up after our investigation and we do share our findings with, uh, with the clients. We just recently had one, a uh, couple months ago, where the uh, family was a husband and wife. They thought that uh, the husband's father was responsible for what was happening. And uh, very unusual, they were having just regular household items appear on the floor very symmetrically, whereas, you know, in a regular haunting or a poltergeist case, it'll be very sporadic items, like you'll find things just kind of scattered across the floor or things like that. But this was very kind of organized almost as if somebody was really trying to get your attention. What they did, um, they called us, and I actually had a medium that, I don't use mediums a whole lot, but occasionally I will, and so they, they thought that it was the husband's father. It was very strange, so I wanted to bring a medium in here just to kind of see if they got any sort of sense, because sometimes I've heard of cases where mediums have gone into homes and... 
um, they don't feel any sort of energy, whether it's a male or a female. Um, so I wanted to kind of see what would happen. So the family was open to us having a medium come in. And some of the things that happened uh, when she arrived, so didn't give her any details at all, just told her what time to show up and where to show up at. So she showed up. The first thing that happened to her once she got out of her car, she started to take a pain in her heart and her left arm felt numb. And she felt that there was a male entity trying to tell her um, that he had had heart issues. So we had found out from the homeowner uh, that his father had passed away in 1991 from a massive heart attack while he was on vacation. Oh, wow. And then while she was scouting out the area, um, she uh, went into the garage and she could feel that there was an item in that garage that belonged to the male spirit that she was feeling. And sure enough, she went over to the back corner and she pulled out a tape measure and she held it in her hand and she said, this is the item that I feel is connected to the male in the house. And we found out after talking to the uh, homeowner that that was his dad's tape measure. So that was really interesting. You had kind of two things happen right right off the, the get-go. Yeah. And then when she came in the house, um, she was uh, having trouble standing on her left leg. She said it felt like she was on a boat, uh, felt really rocky, almost like you're kind of in that turbulent water. I found out later that um, his mother had to have her left leg amputated uh, earlier before she passed away uh, this year uh, because the circulation had stopped flowing um, in that leg. So that was really interesting. And then um, when the medium wasn't around, she was outside in the garage, so she couldn't hear us conversing with the uh, wife of the house. And uh, she had told us that before we had gotten there, a couple days before we got there, they were playing cards with uh, some friends. They all put their cards down to go to the fridge to get a drink. And when they came back, the wife was missing one of her cards. She was missing the seven of spades. And so they looked everywhere for the card. They couldn't find it, and uh, they ended the game there, that, you know, because uh, they, they couldn't continue. They were missing one of the cards. So when uh, my medium came into the house, we gave her the deck of the cards, and we said, can you sense anything about these cards? And while she was holding them, she said, yeah, I keep seeing the six and the eight of spades, but it was the seven of spades that was, that was missing. So she was picking up, uh, she was sensing the two cards, right in between the missing card, which I thought, again, was very interesting. Like, you had a, a 1 in 52 chance to kind of say that because there's 52 uh, cards in a, in a deck of cards. Yeah. And she picked, uh, you know, she picked the two cards that are right on the, uh, the outlayer of what was missing. And um, the last kind of thing that happened is uh, we weren't getting any activity in the house like the family was. We were there for several hours, and... Um, there was no items moved whatsoever. Um, so we decided to kind of hold a, a seance in the, in the living room, again, with the lights on, not, not with the lights out. Um, I was very specific about that. Um, and the two weird things that kind of happened, I guess, is one, I had everybody put their phone on airplane mode. And every once in a while when we would ask uh, if the spirit was present, if they could give us a sign, the sound of a text message would come on the wife's phone. Even though it was on airplane mode, I actually at one point, after it happened about two or three times, I had one of my investigators check the phone because they, they used to use the Samsung phone. And they said the same thing. They're like, I have no idea what's going on. It's on airplane mode. Like everything is the way it should be. There should not be any text coming through. Um, so that was kind of interesting. And then 
she was trying to find out the name of the dad and I didn't even know that information. None of my investigators knew. So she said she kept hearing the sound pa 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 and she said, Is his name um Peter? And uh the homeowner said no. And then she she picked up the tape measure and she said, Ah, he says his name's Paul and then it turned out that was his name was Paul. So out of all that stuff that happened, I mean, maybe giving up the name Paul is like the least I would put, you know, weight into because, you know, she had guessed Peter first and it was wrong and then guessed Paul. But everything else, when you look at the whole totality of the situation, I thought that that was amazing because um, that was really, she. Kind of, as I said, she kind of stole the show for that investigation because nothing paranormal had happened, but all the stuff that she was getting considering she had no information about the case no information about the people that lived there um she was able to correctly you know uh, provide information relevant to the case and so um she kind of helped uh, after the seance she kind of helped the spirit move on into the afterlife so what the spirit had told her and again this is all anecdotal and subjective because we're basing this off of what uh, my medium Jody told told me, but uh, she said that the husband, um, when he died in 1991, felt like he had a lot more to live for, and he decided not to move on. And since then, he's been um, basically just kind of hanging around uh, his kids. And interestingly enough, the homeowner had told me that his sister has also had the items kind of appear in this way as well which is interesting. We never got to interview the sister, but he claims that she kind of had the same thing happening at her house uh, as well. And uh, he said that when his wife passed away this year, she was gone instantly. Uh, He used to watch over her, but then once she passed away, he said that she was just gone. So she had obviously made the conscious choice to to move on. And he was kind of frustrated and and felt like he was kind of stuck here. So anyway, Jody was able to kind of help uh, the spirit move on. And um, I'm still in touch with the homeowners today. I got the final report sitting on my desk that I have to uh, get to them. But, um, you know, we've stayed in touch with them. They haven't had anything else happen. They said the house feels really calm and peaceful. And uh, that, that goes to show some of the aftercare that is needed, you know, because if they did need help, we'd have to go back again and try and see what's going on. But since we've been there, this is back in, um, I think we went there in August. So, uh, it's been, you know, quite a few months now and, uh, everything's really good with the house. So that's, that's the importance of actually trying to help your client rather than just go in and, and, uh, tramper in their house and, you know, take, take some pictures and maybe catch an EBP and then leave. Yeah. I love that. And, and I like that you said you did a final report. That's really cool. What, what does the final report consist of? Yeah, so it's basically a synopsis of the whole investigation. So we usually talk about how the case came in, um, which is usually through email. Uh, Then we talk about um, the interview that they gave us, and we do a synopsis of what they told us in the initial interview. And then um, I summarize what our investigation found. So, for example, in this case, I talk about all the different things that Jody wasn't aware of, but we were able to corroborate through uh, the homeowners by confirming the information. Um, And then uh, also mention if there's any issues that we detected on the equipment. And in this case, there was absolutely nothing. Um, There was no high amounts of electromagnetic field radiation. There was... uh, 
the only thing that happened with the temperature so all the temperatures in the house were good but when jody was communicating with the spirit she felt like she was absolutely freezing and um, I had a uh, thermal camera, a uh, FLIR, a forward-looking uh, infrared uh, thermal camera, handheld device. And when I pointed it at her and she felt like she was getting colder and colder, um, she was actually getting hotter. She, she got two degrees Celsius hotter, um, which was interesting. So she felt like she was freezing or like in the midst of a cold spot, but the, the equipment actually showed she was getting hotter. Um, that was kind of the only anomaly that we that we found in the environment. Um, other than that, I mean, yeah, there was other than the medium information that we were getting, uh, it was a fairly quiet investigation. That's really neat. I I like how that one played out. How it wasn't like I get really frustrated with the shows. I don't even watch them anymore because when they're doing an investigation, they're just it's jump scare after jump scare and I feel like they're hyping themselves up and every little sound is a oh what was that and it had to have been you know and so I like that it's it's a calm situation that you're in you're you're not enhancing fear by turning the lights off you're you're actually doing the work instead of just creating a show yeah no for sure and uh it's kind of sad uh Daryl Walsh and I uh, were working with a producer friend of ours and we had filmed a demo. Uh, We wanted to do uh, a new paranormal show where um, you kind of take almost like uh, because of my law enforcement background, I was a police officer for 15 years. I served uh, with the Royal Canadian Man of Police, which is Canada's federal police force. uh, So it would be equivalent to the FBI. And um, because of my law enforcement background, we had come up with an idea to investigate um, old paranormal cases from a new scientific lens. And uh, one of the cases, for example, that we were looking at uh, reinvestigating was the Enfield Poltergeist case. Um, there's been audio analysis done of Poltergeist knocks. And when they run it through the software, they find that um, there's different acoustics with a Poltergeist knock on a wall or a table compared to somebody doing it with their hand, uh, which is really interesting. And we were going to compare um, a couple of different poltergeist wraps with the Enfield poltergeist cases. And we had permission from uh, the Society for Psychical Research to get access to the uh, material that they have on the Enfield poltergeist case. And one of the TV networks uh, had written back, and it was a very long email with a bunch of criticisms. And they said that uh, they didn't like the fact that Daryl and I um, were um, scientific. Uh, They said that people don't want to hear that ghosts don't exist. And at no point did we say, I actually believe ghosts (laughs) exist, but at no point did uh, we ever say that we were going to say ghosts don't exist. But uh, that's what they said to us. They said uh, that it has to have a scare factor every three minutes. And it was just a ridiculous list of things that the network wanted. And so I, I said to my producer friend, I said, well, there's one or two things we can do. We can um, either go on TV and fake it, which I would hazard a guess that that's what most shows that are on there are doing. Mm-hmm, uh, to make that three scare um, thing. <laughs> exactly. And I said, but the problem is, is like I, I, like I sit with colleagues, uh, you know, like that are, um, there's a research team, for example, on the, at the Rhine Research Center. And I said, um, with those guys, there's about 50 experts um, 
on this team. And I wouldn't be able to like sit across from them virtually and uh, look them in the eye after, you know, if I kind of sold my soul to the devil to do that. So that wasn't an option and uh, wasn't an option for Daryl either. And I said, the, the, the other option is to basically just create a drama show. Like this would not be a paranormal reality show. Like we would just be writers for a TV show like the X-Files basically, because I said, what they're asking and what they want, I said, that just doesn't happen in paranormal investigations. Yeah. Um, so it was, yeah, it was, it was really unfortunate. Um, and since then, I mean, I've seen a bunch of new shows, uh, you know, on TV, but again, they're, they're not as good as the old ones. Uh, on my podcast, uh, Daryl and I do called the dueling parapsychologist podcast. We actually reviewed a bunch of, uh, shows, um, back, uh, as, as soon as they started. So like you kind of had, you know, the first one was ghost hunters with, uh, you know, taps, the Atlantic paranormal society. Mm -hmm. That one wasn't too bad. Like I liked how they went, um, I liked how, you know, they went to their office, they discussed the case, then they went out to the home, they did their investigation, they came back to the office, they reviewed their evidence, and then, of course, they went and they met with the uh, the homeowners. Like, that one wasn't too bad, but we were talking about some of the old shows, like Unsolved Mysteries, um, Sightings. Those ones were really good because it's based off people's experiences with uh, just kind of recreations being filmed. Yeah. And uh, the other show that uh, we didn't mind either was... Um, uh, I think it was called Truth or Fiction or Facts or Fake, but it was yeah. with uh, uh, kind I know of a you're US talking counterpart about. with... Uh, uh, yeah, yeah, I was with, just uh, talking about that the other day. FBI. Yeah, yeah, that one was, that one was really uh, cool because I thought, you know, they went to their office, they discussed uh, a bunch of different options, their team would pick, you know, two, maybe two cases, then they would go out and they would do like um, kind of scientific... Uh, recreations to try and see if they can emulate you know uh, what was submitted to them and uh i thought and that one only lasted for a season or two and then it was taken off the air but um shows like that had a lot more value to them than than what's on tv today so um yeah i, I agree I often caution people, you know, when they watch it, like hopefully you're watching it just for kind of entertainment purposes. And I actually had somebody in the paranormal field say that that's what they call it. They don't call it reality TV. They call it paratainment because it's basically paranormal <laughs> entertainment. So, yeah. Um, and and yeah, the, that's, oh, I'm sorry. I was going to say the fact that the show didn't last too long kind of proves that people are in it for the scare and would rather be scared than get the, you know, facts and truths. Yeah, yeah, and it's, uh, I mean, like, sure, yeah, they're entertaining, but, I mean, there are people out there that um, think that that's, I've heard people say, like, oh, yeah, I, you know, I'm a ghost hunter, and uh, I've learned everything about it from TV, and <laughs> I, I'm just like, oh, my God, yeah. <laughs> like, it's good, it's good that there's people out there trying, but you don't want to follow what they're doing on TV, um, you know, you want to try and, and find some places to take some courses, and um, try and educate yourself and there's not too many people I would imagine that uh, subscribe to you know the Journal of Parapsychology or the Society for Psychical Research's uh, journal um, because the papers that are published in there are you know very academic and they can be very dry but um, I know that there's kind of a, a bridge right now between scientists and um, your lay persons and they're trying to kind of bridge that gap 
um, because the scientists have recognized that, you know, there are a lot of people interested in the paranormal and there are a lot of people doing paranormal investigations that may be out there collecting possible evidence to help go towards proving um, up one phenomena or the other, but uh, they might not be doing it in the most scientific way. So they're actually trying to develop, uh, you know, workshops and, and material to try and bridge that gap and try and make people better investigators because they do realize like there is value in having multiple different people's eyes and ears out there watching for this phenomena. Yeah. Um, but of course, if, if it's going to be empirically validated uh, in the scientific community, it's got to be done properly. So um, it's definitely a new trend that, uh, that is on the go. I love that because a lot of, a lot of, uh, in my experience, a lot of people who I know that know about the paranormal get their information from TV and movies. And then, like, one of the biggest reasons I started my podcast was because the Conjuring movies took everyone by storm. Like, everybody was like, oh my god, did you hear about this movie and what really happened to these people? And they did not look further than the movie. And when I watched the movie, yes, it was an amazing movie, but it seemed so far-fetched to me and it seemed very ghost adventures to me and I was like there's no way that it became this much violence in the haunting and a possession like that like I just couldn't wrap my mind around that being legitimate and so that's why I started researching myself because I mean I knew there was science parts to it and stuff but you've got this movie that claims to be the story of some really really well-known investigators and so it's really frustrating to know that people take this information and eat it up like it's the only source of it. Yeah, I actually, I, I, th I thought it was interesting when you were talking to Eric Vitale, and I think he had said something to the effect of, you know, when they created the first Annabelle movie, there was like maybe 25% of it was really based on, you know, the alleged facts collected by uh, Ed and Lorraine Warren. And then he said, you know, as the movie's, he kept coming out and, and kept progressing. It was, you know, less and less based on the real story kind of thing, mm -hmm. um, which is, you know, and of course I understand like with Hollywood as well, like they'll take any story. It could even just be a survival story and they're going to add some dramatics to it because, you know, that's, that's what they do kind of thing. But um, no, it's good when you have like a head on your shoulders, like, like yourself and you, Actually, if you are, if you're interested in it, like dig into it and find out what the real facts were. Um, I kid you not, there was one time uh, it was me, uh, my wife Sarah, that's a member of PPRI as well, and her mother. We were watching a movie, and it said it was based on true events. I think it said based on true events. It didn't say based on true story, based on true events. And so watch the movie, and then afterwards, I always like to do like you said. I go out and do research and see like how close it was to the real thing. And what we found out about this one movie was the only thing in it that was based on true events was that uh, women go missing. Oh, wow. Other than that, the entire movie was like uh, completely fictional. But the only thing that was true in there is about that there's a lot of missing women. Gotcha, <laughs> and yeah. uh, I couldn't believe it that they would actually like throw that title up there to kind of, you know, I assume it's to kind of make people more interested because obviously when you hear it's based on a true story or it's based on true events, people are more interested in, in watching it. So yes. you got to be careful and you definitely have to do your research. Yes, and humans have this 
nature to us where we are fascinated by things if we know they can really happen. Like it's scarier, it's more intriguing, it's more fascinating. Yes, absolutely. I even say, uh, uh, when we talk about skeptics, I say um, it's, it's interesting because it, uh, you could be talking to somebody that doesn't believe in ghosts or they're skeptical, uh, but as soon as you start telling them about an experience you had or you're re- relaying a ghost story that somebody told you or an investigation that you were on, it's interesting because they all become quiet and they, they are intently listening. They might not necessarily, once you're done your story, agree with it or become a believer or anything like that, but it's just interesting that they become quiet and they they listen to it really, mm-hmm. you know, intently. Uh, I think it's just because all people are fascinated yeah. by the unknown and, and the supernatural. Yeah, I agree. Um, I had an experience like that where I was in Mexico and because of just being in a new place and me and my mom being into ghosts and stuff, we were speaking with this lady and we asked her, you know, do you know any good ghost stories around here? And she said, well, we don't really talk about it. A lot of people don't believe and I don't really believe, but, and then she's proceeded to tell us her ghost story. And even though she said she didn't believe, she seemed to believe that story and it was pretty compelling. She said she would come into work every day at her new job and there was this man that would stand outside and wave at people and, you know, to greet them. And she mentioned it one day to a coworker, and that coworker had told her that man has passed. He's not alive anymore. And she had no idea. That's really fascinating that you say that because I had a police officer in one of my books that I wrote tell me the same thing. He wasn't a believer in ghosts, but he said, he said, I don't know what I saw, but this is what I saw. And he basically described a ghost story. He said that him and his, uh, a girlfriend at the time were heading home. It was really late in the morning. And uh, once they crossed the bridge, they saw two young girls outside at like two o'clock in the morning, uh, wearing like olden style clothing by themselves. They looked really creepy. He said that uh, he described them as like almost like the two girls on the movie, the shining. And they just kept driving. He dropped his girlfriend off. And then when he came back, he went back the same way. And, uh, of course, there was nobody around there at all. And uh, he had heard a story about um, two girls uh, that had drowned in the lake that uh, that was nearby. And there has been lots of drownings in the lake there, the Bredore Lake. And he thinks that that might have been what he saw, you know, because he said it didn't make sense. Like, nobody at that time would have their two little girls outside at 2 o'clock in the morning by themselves. And, uh, but he still couldn't bring himself to say that he thinks it was a ghost sighting. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> so that made me think of a yeah, question. Yeah. Uh, what would you say? A lot of people would argue that you are more prone to have an experience in the dark, like say at nighttime outside or you know something like that. And a lot of people say they don't believe you can see things during the daytime. How would you um, explain that to someone that you know that's not necessarily true? Yeah, I mean, um, certainly there's different advantages and disadvantages. You know, in the daytime, you can certainly see better because of the the light and your eyes take in more light and you're able to visually see things uh, better. Whereas in the dark, and depending on how dark it is, um, that can cause you to misinterpret events possibly. And there has been some studies done of low light causing kind of misperceptions in the paranormal. Um, so that is certainly a possibility. You, you want 
the best light possible. Again, like when SPR examined all the ghost cases, there's no rhyme or reason for when a ghost will appear. And in fact, some people say uh, when they've seen a ghost that they look just as real as you and I. They're, they're not translucent. They look like a, hu- a human. I actually had a girl, um, we held an educational event at a hotel in Halifax, and I had always heard the hotel was haunted, but you can't find any material on the internet saying that it is or, or any ghost stories associated to it. And as our event was coming up, um, I was telling people about it, and I ran into a couple of people that actually used to work there. So there was a guy I played hockey with that used to work there that told me it was haunted as well. And so that uh, in the basement, uh, people often see um, an employee that had died not on site, um, but off-site, and he somehow appears around the employee locker every once in a while. But my dog groomer, when I was picking up my dogs, uh, she would listen to podcasts while she's grooming dogs to kind of kill time past her day. And so I had given her my podcast, and when she found out about um, us holding the event at the Westin Hotel in Halifax, she told me she used to work there. And she said one night... Um, they used to get rooms for cheap, so she rented a, her parents a room. And they had gone out to Halifax, and when they got back, they ordered some room service. And uh, once they were done eating, she thought she'd be helpful and bring the dirty dishes down to the kitchen because she's an employee there. So she got on the service elevator, and when she got on the service elevator, she said there was a man standing there. Um, he was about six feet tall. He was wearing all black, like a black uh, kind of dress coat, like a pea coat. He had a black uh, kind of fedora hat on. Um, she couldn't see his eyes, just like his mouth and his nose. And she was kind of taken aback by it. She was only um, 19 years old at the time. Um, so she's like, oh, that's kind of weird. So she just said, you know, hello, good evening. And then she got onto the elevator. Um, he was standing behind her. She got down to the main level. When the door opened, she turned around to say goodnight to him again. And uh, he was gone. Wow. Just completely gone. But she described him as being, you know, just as real as, as she was. And then you talk to other people and they say that when they've seen an apparition, uh, you know, they're kind of semi-translucent. So I often wonder if we've seen ghosts in haunted places and we just don't even know that we have, especially if they're not transparent. Yeah. Um, so you do have to keep that, keep that in mind, too, is that some, you know, some things that we see are are not kind of translucent, uh, that they're... It could be just as real as, as you or I, and, and uh, we don't, uh, we wouldn't really necessarily know. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, so I, I, I certainly, you know, think that at least, it, I mean, people are going to do what they're going to do. And, you know, if they like investigating in, in the dark uh, and kind of add to the scare factor, I guess, because, you know, I could see if you're doing it for fun, I could see that being uh, a reason. But, um, yeah, if you're doing it like seriously and you want to be taken serious, I think you'll do it with the lights on. That makes sense to me, and uh, and it seems to when you're more scared, like when you turn the lights off for the fear factor, you're more likely to be jumpy and think more along the lines of something being paranormal. You, I feel like you're less clear-headed when you're scared when you go into it with like the anticipation of being scared versus in just investigating. Yeah, for sure. Um, they have done studies uh, as well where um, people that experience the paranormal uh, tend to be believers. So believers will actually experience paranormal phenomena more so than 
uh, skeptic. So, of course, uh, some people argue that it's because um, I've actually heard the term gullible used, but mm-hmm. believers are, you know, more gullible and that they'll associate things to the paranormal more so than somebody that's skeptical and critical. But um, that that is another interesting kind of trend that shows up quite a bit. They've done a lot of this believer versus skeptic kind of study studies, and, and it's showing that believers, you know, do seem to... Um, experience the paranormal more so than skeptics and that makes sense i call myself a skeptical believer because i really want to believe and i believe that some people have really experienced some things that aren't explained by anything we know of but i'm so quick to have all the questions that i can't just sit in a situation and every little noise i hear is more like okay so what caused that versus oh my god that was a ghost (laughs) Yeah, no, for sure, and uh, I think I think it's good to be be both. Like I call myself uh, a critical believer because I, you know, like I told you stories about how we go in homes, and the first thing we do is look for, uh, you know, somebody emails us and they say, "Oh, my place is haunted and stuff's happening and all that stuff." When I go into the home, I don't go in like looking for a ghost or a haunting. I go in saying, "Let me come in, let me assess the situation, and let me see what I find." And uh, sometimes it turns out to be natural phenomena. Other times you're left, uh, you know, saying, how did that penny materialize? And how did my investigator see the apparition of a little girl? I don't know. So um, I think it's it, it's important to, to have that kind of mindset and not just be one way or the other. I find, uh, you know, hardcore skeptics, which have a bad name, um, it's just because they just simply say, well, ghosts don't exist. Like, yeah prove that science says that they you know science hasn't said that they exist so how how can they exist and they just have kind of those closed off kind of beliefs and and arguments whereas somebody that's kind of critical you know will look at you know well geez i don't know people have been reporting apparitions since uh the first documented civilization back in mesopotamia so i mean there's got to be some something to this and then we know that uh, we've seen ghosts in laboratories, you know, generated through, um, you know, the work of Michael Persinger with his uh, geomagnetic uh, um, studies that he's done. So when I get asked that question, you know, do ghosts exist? I always say, well, yes, they exist, but what are they is, uh, yeah. is the question. Yeah. You know, um, is it a discarnate discur- entity or human consciousness that has you know, left the body upon death, or is it just something in the environment that causes us to see and experience this stuff? Seriously, yeah, that's that's great. I love that. And um, during our talk, I thought of a couple questions for you. Um, you mentioned the uh, equipment and how it can't register consciousness. So what would be your explanation of types of equipment that can produce words through the white noise or or things like that? How do you feel about those? Uh, very interesting. So I, I don't use any of the ghost apps uh, myself. In fact, um, one of my investigators is an audio engineer, and I have him do all my electronic voice phenomena for us. Um, he recently just signed uh, a contract with um, the University of uh, Western Ontario, and he's uh, participating in a research study there. And one of the things they're looking at are all these apps. And um, I do believe that um, he will be working on kind of a reverse engineer of these apps. And I know he has already looked at cell phones, for example, because one night he had me do a test for him. So he had me download um, 
an EMF app. I think it's literally just called EMF. And he did say, and I, I'm not a techie guy, but he did say that the cell phones do have EMF in them. They can detect EMF, but it's not as good as like an actual EMF reader. It's, um, I don't even know what it's designed for, whether it's to pick up the signals of the phone or anything like that. But he said the phone does have EMF capability in it, but it's not as good as a real one. So he wanted me to test something out in my house uh, between the app and the real EMF reader. So I went to my outlets, but um, my house is also 110 years old, but it's uh, been well taken care of. And uh, when we bought it, it had been rewired. So the electrical in the house is, is mint. So I, uh, I'll go to the mic. The microwave always gives off excessive amounts of EMF. So I ran the microwave and um, the, the real EMF was shooting up. Uh, it was on milligauss and it was shooting up to about, um, it was around 56 to 62 milligauss, which is very, very high. Anything uh, 3.0 and up is considered unsafe by the uh FDA uh, down there in the States. So it was shooting up around, you know, 55 to 60. But the app still showed that it was green and safe to stand in front of the microwave. Wow. And so it, it, it wasn't reliable at all. And um, what he's finding uh, through his kind of work on these apps is that um, it uses uh, information. It, it can tell where you're at because it's got GPS in the phone that it can it can use. It's got uh, it can tell what direction you are because it does have a compass in the phone. Um, you know, even if you just use your compass app, it's using the the compass to to do that. So he figures that these apps are using all the different tools that are available in the phone for entertainment purposes, and uh, I'm hoping that. Um, when uh, all the research is done and the papers come out that we'll find out that these apps are mostly just for, for entertainment because it's interesting as well. I, I, I have friends that use uh, an app where it talks to you and it'll say words mm-hmm. and they always get electronic voice phenomena from the app. But when I asked them, well, did you have a regular tape recorder there? Well, yeah. And it, did anything appear on that? Well, no. So it's all just coming from the app and not so much, you know, the the old techniques that we used to use. So I'm very, very skeptical of of the apps. And, uh, yeah, I I try not to use them. Like when I do, um, when I do any sort of like uh, EVP sessions, I guess for lack of a better term, um, I always use the digital recorders that we have. What I did is I bought uh, most of my investigators the exact same digital recorder. We all use a Philips um, microphone uh, recorder. And the reason for that is is because, one, you can say that it's consistent. It's the exact same device. And, two, normally, for whatever reason, legitimate EVPs, you can have two tape recorders side by side. And for whatever reason, um, the EVP will only be recorded on one. Instead wow. of both, even though it should be recorded on both, that's yeah. Interesting. So that that's really that's really interesting as well. And um, I know a lot of people, a lot of investigators love um, electronic voice phenomena, and I think that it's good if you have other stuff happening. So if you have like a witness that says they see an apparition in the home, and it's a female, and uh, you go in there and you're detecting cold spots and 
you're getting EMF signals, but the wiring in the house is fine. And then all of a sudden you capture an EVP and it's the, it sounds like a female's voice. I think that holds more weight than just going in and getting like an EVP and saying, oh, it's a, you know, it's a ghost. Because there's four different theories on what an EVP could be. Um, one is that we all, and the one that we all hope it is, but it, that it's a ghost trying to communicate yeah. <laughs> with us. The, the, the other um, one, is, and I see this come up a lot, is uh, audio pareidolia. And what that is, is our brain is designed to make sense of things that don't make sense to us. So do you ever find when somebody sends you an EVP but tells you what it is, you can't unhear that? Yeah, and like I once when, you know what it says. Yeah, and I, I yeah. have had some people. I had someone on my show um, say they wanted to play one for me, and she asked if I wanted to know ahead of time. And I said, no, I want to listen first because I feel like if someone tells you, it influences what you hear for sure. Definitely, definitely, and that's because our our brain is trying to decipher that noise that we hear that may be a voice or it may not be a voice, and our brain is trying to make it a voice. Um, so that is, uh, that is one possibility. The other two possibilities with EVPs is obviously interference. And I had a case of that, uh, once before there was two guys communicating through Facebook messenger and they were using the, um, voice, not the voice to text, but the voice messages to each other. Mm -hmm. And what had happened is on one of the messages, you could hear this other dark, uh, darker, deeper male voice interrupt the guy. And uh, the guy didn't know at the time until he sent it to his friend that it had happened. So it kind of spooked the two of them out. They found our organization. They sent me the, the clip. And I had a friend that still worked um, with the RCMP technological crime unit at the time. So I had sent him the audio clip to take a look at it. And what he was able to determine was that it was some sort of interference from another Facebook conversation that had somehow crossed over to these guys' uh, conversation. Wow. So it can happen. And then the, the, the third or the fourth uh, and final kind of theory that people work with is that it could be telepathy from either the homeowners that are present during the investigation, some of the investigators, or even somebody nearby. And um, I actually had an investigator that this happened to. So she, uh, Michelle DeRoche, she's a host of uh, the Outer Realm uh, radio show out of uh, Toronto. And uh, she was on a case once where they were going to do an initial interview of the family to see if it was worth doing a full-on investigation. But her daughter was sick that night, so she had that on the back of her mind. She was um, at the house, and while they were interviewing the couple, tape recording it, she kept saying to herself in her head, I got to get home. My daughter's really sick. I got to get home. My daughter's really sick. So they finished the interview. Uh, her technological guy kind of downloads the statements, uh, listens to it, types up a summary. And as he's listening to it, he can hear Michelle's voice come over the tape saying, I got to get home. My daughter's really sick. And he's like, that's weird. He's like, I don't remember her saying that. And it doesn't make sense because it didn't interrupt the natural flow of conversation. The homeowner continued to talk, like, rather than the rational person would be like, oh, my God, well, if your daughter's sick, then go home. Yeah. Um, so he called Mich Michelle and told her about this. And she said, geez, she goes, I was thinking that, but I did not say that. And she goes, of course, I wouldn't say that. That would be rude. And uh, he played it for her. And she's like, I was saying that in my head, um, not out loud. And um, I think what what you saw there was that was a form of telepathy being recorded on the, on the audio recorder. That's so, incredible. That has happened the, to me. 
I mean, not recorded, but I have been with my mom and my boyfriend. They have heard me say things I don't remember saying out loud. But I was and thinking that's specific. Yeah. Could be, yeah, they could be picking up, uh, you know, on your thoughts through telepathy. And telepathy, actually, I uh, just taught this in there, my introduction to parapsychology course, is actually one of the better things that we study in parapsychology that have... Um, really good results, especially things to do with telepathy and telephone on, on who's calling you. Um, there's been a lot of studies done where they've even had a computer a computer generate this. So they'll say, give me a list of five people that you know um, that would like to be part of this experiment. So they'll touch base with them. They'll get their phone number. They'll add it into a random uh, generator uh, on the computer. And every once in a while, the computer will phone that person and have them get ready to phone the person that thinks they're telepathic and those studies have seemed to show that the person that's telepathic can tell who's going to call them that's incredible so i'm not i'm not surprised that you said that because obviously you would have a close relationship with uh, your boyfriend and your mother so and um, they've also done studies where it shows that people that do have that ability it's usually somebody that you're close to and have a close personal bond with so you know what you just said makes total sense to me um but yeah it's, it's fascinating stuff that is really cool i love that okay so i had another question for you um well i c- connect my brain again <laughs> when i lose connection like that um i was going to ask you oh yes Okay, so um, aside from electronic tools that a lot of people like to use, how do you feel about the more traditional tools that are more likely to be assumed to be us making the move, like, you know, a Ouija board or dowsing rods or pendulums? How do you feel about those? Yeah, those are really, uh, those are really interesting. Um, I personally haven't used them myself, but I have seen people use... Uh, pendulums and dowsing rods or uh, divinity tools um and they you know they do they do seem to you know to work i've seen them uh, dowsing rods especially be used to detect water and, and things like that mm-hmm. um the ouija board uh, i've only had one personal experience with the ouija board and it was really weird so we had a ouija board as a kid and apparently my mother um when i started getting into paranormal investigations was really worried for my safety spiritually and apparently she had taken our week board and had it blessed um and had asked that only good spirits can come through it so uh one time we couldn't find um the television remote um that we had down in our our rec room and for whatever reason we decided to break up the ouija board and ask the ouija board about it and it was me my brother and my two sisters and we kept getting the same answer every time it kept saying uts and we're like, UTS, like, that's not even a word. What does that mean? So we started thinking about it. And we did this multiple different times. We did it a couple times throughout the day. And it kept saying the same thing. So we started thinking about it. We're like, well, maybe it means under the stairs. Because uh, my parents used to have a wine cellar underneath the stairs. And we used to go play in there. So we checked underneath the stairs. Wasn't there. Then we thought, well, maybe it means under the sofa or the sofa cushions. So we checked under there. Wasn't there. Um we thought it might, uh, you know, uh, said underneath uh, the sink. Um, so we checked, like, underneath the bathroom sink or underneath the upstairs kitchen sink. Couldn't find it. The next day, my sister was playing with her uh, toy uh, kitchen, 
And when she opened up the cab, the fake toy cabinets underneath the sink of the toy, that's where the TV remote was. It was UTS under the sink. Oh, wow. Yeah. And so I just very, very weird. I mean, sure, it could be a coincidence, but uh, I just found it weird that it kept spelling out UTS and then we found it under the sink. Um, so I, I, I do think, I do think it's a tool that you can use to communicate. I just think you have to be careful with it. I know it gets associated with demons and, mm-hmm. and bad things, but the, the real danger with it is, is that you just don't know who you're communicating with. Um, because you know, it could be grandma or it could just be, you know, a, a prankster giving you information. You know, you just yeah. don't know who you're communicating with and how reliable that information is. That's really where the true danger of, uh, uh, Ouija boards. Uh, I agree. Stem from. Yeah. And it's, same with mediums. Like I know a lot of mediums can tell whether the energy is male or female, but most mediums will say, well, yeah, I can't really say a hundred percent sure that this is John Smith I'm talking to. I can just tell you it's like a male energy yeah. that I'm feeling or it's a female energy. But even mediums have to be, you know, careful on, on who they're communicating with. Yeah, because if anything in, you know, the history is true, it could be someone lying to you. Yeah, it could be. Unless, like, you had a picture of somebody and somebody that's clairvoyant, somebody that sees, um, that might be a bit different. But I know there's a lot of mediums that are actually clairaudient, so they they hear uh, voices and they hear um, information is given to them through hearing rather than visual. So, yeah, I know it's definitely something you have to, to keep in mind. For sure. Um, Lorraine Warren was, some said she was a clairvoyant and some said she was a light trans medium. Do you know the difference in those? Yeah, so uh, clairvoyant, um, as I said, um, is somebody that gets visual images to them. And um, I believe I believe Lorraine might have also been clairaudient too. I think she had uh, quite a few of, uh, of the the Claire's actually um and a a a trans uh medium uh is something that you don't uh really hear about a whole lot anymore um but what a trans medium used to used to do or people that uh, believe to be a trans medium is the person that is able to kind of enter an altered state of consciousness through a trance and that allows spirits or entities um, from the spirit world to communicate through them. And you'll see that in the movie, the conjuring, you mm-hmm. know, when, uh, uh, Bear Firminga sitting at the table, for example, in a, the Amityville house, she goes into, that would be considered a trance. Uh, and then she's able to, um, visualize the murders of the, the Fayo house. So that would be, um, somebody that's a, a trans medium. So, um, Certainly, uh, Lorraine uh, used to use that as one of her techniques. She was also uh, clairvoyant. I do believe in one of the books um, that I read, one of the Warren books, I do believe she was tested at UCLA, mm-hmm. and in the book anyway. Uh, I know also on your podcast there were some inaccuracies about names and stuff in later printed editions, but I know in the in the book uh, it did say she was tested at UCLA and uh, that her results were uh, above chance, which is... Um, usually to indicate that, you know, it's, they usually say it's statistically significant because it's above chance. So, um, yeah, it would have been interesting though, uh, to have seen the actual, um, results, not test results, but to find out who had actually tested. 
For sure. And yeah. I've thought the same. And um, I don't know if they're in existence anymore. Like, I'm sure they had them when they did it. But I don't know who has them now or if they're still around. But uh, it's very frustrating um, since my research revolves so much around the Warrens. I find very little, you know, evidence to back things. Um, a lot of the time they keep it to themselves. I've been told it does exist. They just don't share it with the public. They only sh- shared it with... Um, like people that came to their lectures and stuff like that. And they used to host things in the museum a lot and share. And uh, a lot of um, of their evidence, their so-called evidence, is just, it's been so tightly kept. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I, I've, I've obviously heard that, heard that as well. And uh, I know I attended one event um, by NESPR uh, a couple of years ago in Connecticut there. It was uh, an evening with Annabelle. And I do know that Tony shared um, some video from one of their cases, which was really cool. It was a video that I hadn't seen, you know, on YouTube or anything like that. Um, but I mean, I guess kind of makes sense as well. If I'm thinking of, of my position at PPRI as a corporate director, like I've got, um, you know, I've got, things from cases as well that I haven't, uh, you know, shared to the public or anything like that. Now, some I have, like when I wrote my book, Evil in Exeter, I put uh, some pictures in there from the FLIR because we had um, these dark, distorted footprints appear across the bed when the medium was calling the uh, evil entity over towards her. That appeared on the FLIR. I was able to capture a picture of it before and after. Um, so I, I published those in my book and, uh, in any educational events and lectures I do, I, I sometimes use stuff from our cases and things like that. So, um, but it's interesting though, like if somebody was to contact me and say like, you know, Hey, I heard your wife was tested, um, for their mediumship abilities. Like, can you kind of point me in that direction? I'm just interested in doing some further research on that. You know, I would be able to give them you know the name of who did it and like provide that kind of information so Mm -hmm. um yeah i can kind of see both sides i guess you know what i mean it just depends on uh on on the situation but uh they're very hard to get get in touch with actually like uh tony was great to deal with at that event i i uh met him and uh i found out he was a former police officer as well so we kind of bonded over that but um i invited him to be on my podcast uh maybe two years ago and i i didn't get a response And then I invited him to uh, see if he was interested in being a guest speaker for my 2024 Halifax Paranormal Symposium and uh, didn't get a response uh, back either. So I don't know. uh, Very mysterious organization, like you said. Yeah, we've we've had a lot of um, ever since I've had Eric and Frank on, I've had a lot of people reach out to me to share their experiences. Um, I've also found a few people, you know, through my research that have had direct experiences with the Warrens and uh, Tony himself and then the Nesper. And uh, um, as of like, so when I started this, my goal was to share the truths and kind of shine light on the stuff that was exaggerated or, you know, just plain false. And through the journey, um, Tony comes up more and more and a lot of people are coming forward and they're not happy with the way he runs Nesper, the way he is leading the legacy of the Warrens. And a lot of people are really frustrated with him. And because of my guests, and um, I'm not sure if Tony listened or if he just heard they were on the show and assumed, but he has been very upset with my guests and, you know, threatened them and posted on Facebook about them. And I'm not sure he listened, but no one has really 
said anything bad, like you heard Eric say. Some some people just decline to answer certain questions out of respect or, you know, just not want to get in the drama or whatever. But Tony seems to be generating a lot of drama all on his own, I've noticed. Yeah, like I listened to the interview and like I said, I, uh, I talked to you about it. I didn't uh, feel that, you know, he said anything inappropriate. In fact, some stuff that he didn't want to talk about, he just said that he, you know, doesn't doesn't want to answer it. Um, yeah, uh, I, I do find though that the, the paranormal community, um, as much as sometimes we come together as a community, I find... Uh, a lot of times there's a lot of fighting, infighting in the, in the paranormal community. I personally um, don't associate with a whole lot of other organizations. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I fail when I did in my younger years when PPRI was brand new. It was a lot of the same thing. Like you almost get the attitude like, well, you can't investigate that restaurant because we're investigating that mm-hmm. restaurant. Almost yep. like there's own ownership over certain areas to investigate or ownerships over ghosts. Like no, no one owns yep. any ghosts. Like it, that, that, that is somebody that died and their consciousness and personality may have survived bodily death and are living on that. That is a person. Nobody owns that person. Yeah. And um, I've seen a lot of young investigators is, oh, doing that on YouTube. They're, there, um, I saw a, a lesser one investigating and filming, and while he was investigating and filming, a bigger YouTuber came in and told the management that the the lesser influencer was harassing him and his team and had them kicked out, and he wasn't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's 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 really sad when I see uh, the infighting go on because uh, a lot of these groups uh, will come across PPRI's Facebook page and they'll uh, ask us to follow them or whatnot so you know like we we follow a bunch of different pages and groups and um yeah just every once in a while you'll see a post and it's just like some infighting going on and uh i just uh i don't know i shake my head because we're already against everyone else anyway being in this field and, and investigating it because mainstream science has such a hard time to acknowledge the paranormal yet we're fighting with our own as well and mm-hmm. uh just not that camaraderie there. Like when I was with the police force, you know what I mean? Like, uh, police, police, police officers are tight with other police officers. And it's like, it's like a, a, a community and a brotherhood, like, or a sisterhood. You can, I can go down to Florida and tell, uh, an Orlando police officer that I used to be an RCMP officer. And we have this instant connection because we both had to go through training. We both probably have seen dead bodies. Like there's a lot of commonalities, but yeah. with the paranormal, it, it doesn't seem to be that way, uh, which is really sad. Um, yeah, it seems to be, hopefully things get better. Yeah. It seems to be a lot of, um, one upping each other. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And then I find, too, like, I actually had a split in my group uh, when it was fairly new. We had um, a couple of members that wanted to jump on the TV bandwagon, and I was telling them, I was like, well, that's not what my organization's about. Like, you know, like, I'm not about getting on and getting my own television show Mm -hmm. and being famous. I said, like, we are in this to collect people's personal experiences and study them and analyze them, and um, they repeatedly threw out the tv idea and i kept saying no to it and then i found out one day through one of my other investigators i got a phone call saying uh, yeah these guys started their own group and uh, here's the web page <laughs> and uh i went on and sure enough they did and uh you know i just i said well you know good luck and 
um, my organization's still going, and I know uh, I know those guys are long gone and mm-hmm. head of the paranormal game. But yeah, uh, you know, and, and they never did. They never did get a TV series <laughs> off 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 the go. So um, yeah, it's just uh, I don't know. There's just so much. Uh, fighting infighting i guess in the paranormal it's disheartening yeah, sometimes it really is and it seems to be two groups there's the ones that even though they may believe genuinely and such they're out for the fame and then you have the genuine believers who are just looking for answers yeah uh, you're right um you're absolutely right it's uh it's interesting hopefully it changes you know uh yeah i mean and I'm trying to like. There's got to be. There's got to be like a, a combination. We have to get together and we have to work together. We're all kind of trying to do the same job, you know. Some more professional than others, but at the end of the day, we all do it because we're interested in it. Mm-hmm. Something that we love, and we're trying to, you know, get the best evidence possible. And, yes. uh, and there's share just no need it. for the fighting and the backstabbing and and all that stuff. Agreed. Okay, I have one final question I wanted to ask you before I let you go for the day. And it's just more of a personal opinion question because I'm curious. How do you feel about Annabelle, a haunted doll? Um, I certainly love the story about it. Actually, I, uh, you know, I I love the way that the Warrens are portrayed by uh, Patrick Wilson and uh, Mm -hmm. Raminka. I'm certainly... of the conjuring movies and uh the annabelle uh story um you know i have heard about that story for many many years um i uh i do agree uh with uh, what you and eric were talking about uh, about trying to fact check some of the stuff with uh, the annabelle story it's very hard to, to come across i know nobody has ever come across the uh you know, a police report which mm-hmm. showed that somebody had died on a motorcycle accident and all that stuff i think the story about it um you know, it is really cool and fascinating. Whether or not she's she's haunted, uh, you know, I I can't, I can't really say if she is or not. And the only reason that is is because I have a couple of items as well in my office that are haunted. I've got uh, Joe the monkey that I'm looking at right now. <laughs> sure, um, uh, I'll send you a picture of him here after. Um, and he came from Missouri. And, and how I came across him is I was on Facebook. <laughs> I had seen um, a person uh, uh, post that they were trying to get rid of this this doll, and they didn't know what to do, and um, they were going to destroy it and stuff like that. So I had messaged him, and I said, listen, I said, uh, uh, what's the story with this doll? And uh, he said that uh, an old man had passed away, and him and his dad run a uh, flea market, and they went to this estate sale. And his sisters wanted to get rid of this doll. They just thought it was creepy. They don't know why he had it or if he made it or what the purpose of it was. So the kid thought it was cool and he took it. And he said uh, between him and his girlfriend, um, the thing would move occasionally. He found mostly on like a uh, when there's a full moon. Oh. Uh, he said that one time he thought the head turned. And uh, they'd come home from work and the doll would be in different places, very similar to, you know, the Annabelle story. And so he ended up having to lock it up in a trunk. And um, so he sent me the picture of the the doll and the picture of the trunk. And I said, okay, well, I'll pay for the shipping for it, um, you know, if if you want to send it to me. And I'll keep it in my office and, you know, respect it and all that stuff. So... Anyway, he did. He shipped it without the trunk uh, because obviously that would have cost a fortune, mm-hmm. I would imagine. 
So he he stuffed it into a box and, and sent it off to me. And uh, we've had uh, Joe here now with us for a couple of years. I've never had anything happen. My wife uh, works next to him uh, Monday to Friday, and she said she's never had anything uh, happen to him. He was on the, the TV show Repossessed, um, which just came out uh, last year. I think it's on Hulu. Um and uh, so really cool, but I've never had anything happen. The other haunted object that I have um, is a painting, and I'll send you a picture of that as well. It's uh, really cool. It's got, like, some red and dark colors in it, and there's a door. Um, kind of reminds me of the movie The Insidious. It's got, like, that Ooh. door kind of right in the middle of it. And the person that had uh, drawn it or painted it, um, every time she goes through a hard time in her life, uh, she paints, like, these these pictures she had painted this after uh beating um a drug addiction and, and going through a rough time and she hung it up on her wall and it wouldn't stay hung she said every time she'd hang it up uh, it would fall down and what broke the uh camel's back is uh one night it flew off the wall and hit her husband oh, wow. so again i saw i saw on the internet that uh, she was looking to get rid of it and needed help to get rid of it so again i offered to pay for the shipping i said like i'll you know i'll pay for the shipping and um you can send it to me so she tried to go to staples to get uh the packaging material and on her way to staples she almost got t-boned so she gets there gets the packaging material goes back to her mom's house packages it up um puts it in the vehicle overnight her van the next day she sends me a picture of her van somebody had tried to break into her van and actually ripped one of the door handles off of her van um, so then she goes to the post office that day and as she's at the post office in line waiting to find out how much it is to ship it and what way I want it to ship, um, she was trying to text me, but her phone kept glitching out and kept resetting on her. So eventually she managed to ask me how, like, which way I wanted to ship. And of course I just sent it the cheapest possible way because the faster it comes, the more expensive it's going to be. So, um, and I've had that hung up on my office wall. And again, I, I haven't had, uh, anything at all happened to us um and the third object i have uh came from a poltergeist case um back in the 1900s it was called the fire spook of caledonia mills and it's famous for one night um the house had 38 spontaneous fires break out in it and eventually the family moved out of the home and uh it burned to the ground and um it's kind of a abandoned spot that's overgrown now so the only thing that's left of the house right now is just kind of the stone foundation that existed so while we were out there one time uh there's folklore that says if you take anything from the property um your house or your car or you'll have bad luck and could catch fire so of course uh i was only i think 18 at the (laughs) time um, I took a piece of the foundation because that's all that was really left of the house. And I've had that piece of foundation now for 26 years uh, locked up in my file cabinet. And I haven't had, you know, any any issues happen. So I could totally see the doll being haunted to get back to your initial question. I know that's a long, <laughs> no, long no, you're answer, good. but I could, totally, I could totally see it being haunted. It's just doesn't display itself you know yeah uh, almost like the objects that, that i have um, okay no that's but i do fair. think it's really cool and if, if, in fact i think it's so cool i actually built a replica and again i'll send you this i'll have to send you these three pictures yeah that'd be um, awesome i built a replica of annabelle's um case with a friend and i uh had the movie annabelle in it and then one of my investigators the evp investigator just recently gave me 
a Raggedy Ann doll that allegedly came from the same production line as the one that the Warrens have. That's awesome. Uh, because his friend kind of has a history of it. So I, I have them put together in the case. I'll send you a picture of it. And uh, my wife was actually more creeped out by the Raggedy Ann doll than mm-hmm. she was Joe the Monkey. That's great. Yeah. I think that yeah. doll is creepy. It, it might be the story behind it, but I've always felt like the Raggedy Ann was just a little creepy. <laughs> Yeah, it is. It is. There's something about it. Like Sarah, I had it sitting in a, 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 one of her office chairs and I told her, I said, I'm going to move Joe out of the cabinet because there's just not enough room for Joe and the movie Annabelle and then the Raggedy Ann doll. I said, I'm going to move um, him out. I'll just put him on my bookcase uh, because, you know, he hasn't done anything to mm-hmm. us in two, two years. I don't assume that, you know, he's going to become active or if he does, I'll have to make sure I get some video of it. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I was going to move move the Raggedy Ann doll in the case and uh, Sarah said she had come back to her desk a couple times and found the doll laying face down on the floor and it just creeps her out. She's like, you have got to lock that doll up. So, that's, uh, that's interesting. That's where she is now. But I'll send you the pictures because they are cool. That's very cool. Yeah, I would love that. Um, I've been doing, uh, I'm doing a part two to my Annabelle because I've uncovered a, quite a bit more actually um, that goes with the case. And one of the things that was shared with me, a friend of mine, she's been helping me do some research when she has time to look um, like do deep dives on the internet for things. And it turns out there's actually a really dark history behind Annabelle, the, or I'm sorry, the Raggedy Ann dolls creation, her original creation. Um, and also in the fifties, uh, she found a news article where there was a, a murder. A man had slain his wife and daughter and left an, uh, a Raggedy Ann doll sitting, facing, looking at the daughter's dead body. Wow. And that's, I thought that was crazy. That's really interesting. I almost I almost wonder if they kind of got that uh, idea for one of the Annabelle movies with the, the cult member and the, and the blood gets into the Annabelle yeah. doll. That's what um, I thought of when I read it. from something like that. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah, that's really cool. So I'm really excited to do that episode. I have a, quite a bit to share. I'm very, very excited about, and some more uh, interactions with Nesper that are pretty funny. That's interesting. Yeah, I uh, I'll definitely keep an eye out for for any uh, podcast that you release because, uh, like I said, I really enjoyed the one that you did uh, with Eric Bartel. I thought you Thank did, you did you. a good job on it. Thank you very much. I really enjoyed having Eric on, and I've had I've had some really great guests that have been really fun. And I'll definitely let you know when that one goes up. But before I let you go, is awesome. there is there anything else you want to share with the listeners? Um, maybe your information, how people can find you, any social medias and websites. Yeah, for sure. So uh, anyone can find find our website through uh, just going to ppri.net. So that stands for Paranormal Phenomena Research Investigation.net. Um, our social media is usually all the at PPRI and then INC stands for incorporated, um, on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. And, uh, yeah. And, uh, if anyone's interested in any of the books I, I wrote, I wrote, uh, evil and Exer about a case in Exeter, Rhode Island. Um, Supernatural Encounters, True Paranormal Accounts from Law Enforcement, where I interviewed a bunch of different law enforcement people about their experiences. And then because that book came out and did so well, um, I have a third book that was called More Supernatural Encounters from Law Enforcement. And all three of those books are available on Amazon. Awesome. I will find all those links and make sure they're in the show notes for people. And then I just thought of, while we were talking earlier, I wanted to ask you this at the end to leave our listeners with this. When I was a kid, I really, really loved the idea of getting into 
parapsychology. When I learned it was a thing, I thought that's what I want to do. But I live in a place where it wasn't encouraged at all. And I didn't even, I couldn't even begin to figure out then how to go about studying it and then maybe putting like going to school for it is there any advice you could give to anyone listening that might be interested in parapsychology work yeah for sure so if you're looking like for serious academic um uh parapsychology work you know you're better off to get your psychology degree your ba and your master's and then a phd and in your phd you can usually find somebody that's willing to um, mentor you and allow you to do your theses on a parapsychological topic. Usually people pick uh, ones that are well studied, for example, like telepathy, and there's lots of experiments that produce, uh, shown that people can produce telepathy. So they'll pick a topic that you're going to be able to successfully defend. Um, if you're looking for stuff that is academic but not accredited, obviously, um, our parapsychological education center can be found at ppri.net as well. Right now we have an introduction to parapsychology course that we are running. We just finished the introduction to demonology course. And uh, on November 20th, we will do, be doing a four-week uh, poltergeist phenomena course, talking about uh, what a poltergeist is, the history, the theories behind it. And we hope to have some more courses uh, as well um, released. So we're hoping to kind of catch up and have a bunch of different topics on there. Um, that's, that's another one. And, uh, I always throw my, uh, uh, former place where I've gotten a lot of my uh, certificates from as well, which is the Rhine education center. Um, because the Rhine research center was part of Duke university back when it had a parapsychological program and they do a lot of excellent, uh, education as well. They have a field investigators course, uh, an advanced field investigators course. Um, so those are definitely spots that you want to go to, um, just learn something and, or better yourself. Uh, I mean, even just, uh, networking with other people of like-minded individuals in the classroom too is, is great. Like a lot of people make friends in the class and make contact. So if you get a case that you're investigating, you know, you might know somebody, uh, in the other state that can investigate it, you know, that you trust because you went to the class with them. So, um, definitely recommend checking those, those spots out. That is awesome. I love that. I'm definitely going to be signing up. I really want to take your demonology class. I got to learn more about that. Awesome. Yeah, it's, all the details are on our website. You just go to ppri.net, click our education uh, spot on the menu, and then you'll see uh, a drop down for Parapsychological Education Center, and it's got all our information on there. Awesome. I love it. Thank you so, so much. I'm so glad you reached out to me and came onto the show. It's been so educational and I was just eating it all up. I loved it so, so much. Well, no problem. Thank you for having me. I, uh, I appreciate it. Thank you again so much to Elliot for coming on the show. It was so much fun hearing your stories and learning about what you do. And better believe I'm signing up for those classes. I cannot wait. Don't forget to check out the show notes to links to all of Elliot's info, his website, and his books. I ordered them and I cannot wait to read them. Maybe he'll give me permission to read a couple of them on a Listener Case Files episode. One of those is coming again soon, too. I've got a special surprise planned for a super unique listeners episode coming real soon, too. Stay tuned. Until next time.